chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We've been looking at that over the last few weeks. We'll continue uh, looking at Isaiah chapter 9 up until uh, Christmas Eve service. We'll finish Christmas Eve service. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we're celebrating Advent. Advent uh, is, comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning the arrival of or the coming of. There's this anticipation is what that word means. That there's this anticipation that we... Uh, the believer are anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so we celebrate Advent. We celebrate the coming of Christ through His birth on Christmas Day. Uh, in our house, we celebrate Advent with Tennyson. And so we do what we call uh, the Advent Evening is what we call it. And there's this great um, book called uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I, I recommend it for everyone in the room. It does, it's not just a children's book. It's a, an adult book. And what this author does... She walks through, um, she's the daughter of one of the greatest theologians ever to live, in my opinion. Uh, her name is Sally Lloyd-Jones. That name may sound familiar. Uh, her dad, Mr. Jones, Dr. Jones, was an amazing theologian. So she got to sit under some amazing teaching through her lifetime. And out of that comes this children's book. And what this lady does, Sally Lloyd-Jones, what she does is she takes every major story of the Old and New Testament and puts it back to the advent or the coming of Christ in every story. Uh, I've said this from this pulpit before, that uh, every story, Noah and the ark, isn't just a cute story full of animals in a boat. It's a symbol that God would have to redeem His people. And that's what the boat is about. God, the boat, the ark, is a symbol of Christ Himself. You know Joseph and his brothers, they were sold they sold his brother into slavery and then he lives away from them in exile for a long time. And then at the end of the story, it shows Joseph redeeming his own brothers. You see, that's a picture of what Christ did for us. Christ redeemed us into his brotherhood. And every story in that one little Bible points us back to the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so, if you're here this morning and you want to know more about the Bible, I promise, get a kid's Bible. It will be I cannot read that book without crying. I'll put it that way. Because there's a moment in that book at, at the resurrection and the crucifixion that I just crumble every time. Because it's a story about God redeeming His people. That's the story of the Bible. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You know, for us, the last few weeks, we've looked at the advent, the coming of the light. That Jesus is going to be the light of the world and Jesus, through His light, offers us hope. And we looked at that in week one. That Christ is our hope. Even in our darkest circumstances, we have the hope of Christ. Last week we looked at the coming of joy. That joy is found in only our salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no joy, there's no eternal joy without the coming of Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection. And this morning might be the most important of all the mornings that we will celebrate together. Because I really believe that we as believers don't live this truth out. It's found in verses 4 and 5. This morning is the coming victory. We have freedom in Christ Jesus. And yet for so many of us, we don't live that way. We don't live understanding the theological implications that Christ came to set us free. And we are free indeed. We'll look at that this morning. We are free men and women here this morning. I love what an old, old theologian says about this in his book, The Bruised Read. He says this, about being victorious in Christ. The victory lies not with us, but with Christ. 
who has taken on him both to conquer for us and to conquer in us. Let me say that again. To conquer for us and to conquer in us. You see, we have Christ Jesus not only outside of us, but now as believers we have Christ in us. He says the victory lies neither in our own strength to get it, nor in our enemy's strength to defeat it. The enemy cannot defeat the victory of Christ. If it lay with us, we might justly fear, right? If our victory just lied within and of ourselves, we ought to fear. We'll see that this morning. But Christ will maintain his own government in us and take our part against our corruption. They are his enemies as well as ours. Let us therefore be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That comes from Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Let us not look so much at our enemies are as to who our judge and captain is. What he's saying is, let, us, let our focus not be on our enemies, but let's look on who, who's already uh, taken over our enemy. You see, our attention becomes the, the enemy rather than the one who's already defeated the enemy. I believe that's why we don't live victorious Christian lives, nor at what they threaten but what he, God, promises. We have more for us than against us. Let me read that again. That ought to evoke an amen in the crowd. We have more for us than against us. Amen? What coward would not fight when he is sure of victory? Let me say that again. What coward would not fight if he was sure of victory? You see, this morning... We already have a victory that's been won for us. What are we not fighting for? You see, we, we, we already know the outcome of the war. The outcome has already been won, and yet we live as defeated believers this morning. Why is that? I think it's because of what this passage of Scripture has to tell us, that the Christ came, the advent of Christ came, and now we live victorious in that. But why do we not live victorious? We'll get to that. You see, let's get into the passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders and the rod of his oppressors, you, God, Christ, have broken it as you day in the day of Midian. Circle those three words, in the day of Midian. If you want to later this afternoon or this week, what Jesus is saying, he's reminding the people of God about the victorious life that they won through what Gideon did back in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. If you know the story, what happened is that, that Gideon was, he was just a wine presser. He, all he did was collect grapes, put them into a bundle, and started stomping on them to make wine. That's all that Gideon was. And then the God comes to Gideon as he's in the middle of the wine press, stomping on grapes, and says to Gideon, Hey, you man of valor, you mighty man, you are about to go into war, and I will defeat the Midianites through your leadership. Could you imagine what Gideon must have been thinking? Man, all I do is make wine. That's, not, that's all I do, God. Like, do you not see my pants are rolled up? Uh, it, it reminds me of that scene in uh, uh, I Love Lucy. I know I might be young. I still know I love Lucy. Don't judge me. She's in there stomping with her friend. It gets a mess. I remember. That's the image I get. That here's Gideon being the I love Lucy scene, stomping on grapes. And the holy God shows up and says to Gideon, hey, Gideon, today you're no longer just a wine presser, but you are a mighty warrior for me. And you, I'm going to use you to defeat this mighty 
mighty army. And so Gideon calls the people of God and says to the people of God, hey, come, God's giving me a message. And so here this guy is with stained feet in front of 22,000 people. And says to the people, hey, you need to be afraid and you need to tremble because we're about to go into war. And you know what happens? Almost 10,000 people said, see ya. Because he says to them, hey, we're going to go to war and we're going against the Midianites. And the Midianites are a powerful nation. They are a powerful kingdom. And they say, ah, man, I, I probably will die. And so here we get sat with 10,000 people left. And, and here's Gideon looking at the 10,000 people and sees what he's coming against and says, oh, no. He gets really discouraged. And then he goes to God and starts crying out to God. And God says, hey, that's still too many. Huh? What, what Lord, did, did I, like, is the connection on the cell phone bad? And God says, no, no, there's still too many of you. Here's what I want you to do, Gideon. I want you to take those 10,000. I want you to take them to the river. And whoever laps the, the, the water up, that's who I want. So here's these 10,000 men. They go before this creek. And I can just see Gideon thinking, oh, please, all of you drink it the way you need to be drinking it. And all of a sudden, 300 men stand up. And God says, those are the 300 men I want. And you have to imagine, I'm reading the passage, uh, Judges 6, 7, and 8, thinking, oh my goodness. There's no way. There's no way that 300 people, you know, we know the rest of the story. Gideon does not know the rest of the story. Do we get the great luxury? We get chapter 8 and 9 and 10. Gideon did not have those chapters written yet. And he says, okay, this is what God said. I want you to go into war. Oh, but by the way, you're not going to take spears and you're not going to take shovels and you're not going to take uh, the, what we normally go into war. He says, I want you to go do this. I want all of you to go get a trumpet and I want you to get a jar with, some, with, with a fire in it. Really? Now, I grew up in the city. If I go into war with a trumpet, that's bad news. Like, think about this. You're going to war. If we saw on CNN today that we're about to go into war with ISIS and we see, hey, all of our soldiers have no gear but a trumpet, we'd be like, oh, we're in trouble. And, oh, by the way, we only have 300 men going against ISIS. That's what these men were facing that day. And so they go into war. And what God says is, hey, when you get into war, I want you to I want half, a third of you here, a third of you here, and a third of you here. And, and what happens is, what I want you to do is, uh, when it's time, I want you to take those pots that you have the light in, and I want you to smash them. And in the smashing, there's going to be this light, and there, it's going to echo all over the valley, and it's going to freak out the Midianites, and that's what happens. And then the Midianites, they hear it, and they see all that's going around them, and they see it as if there's 30,000 men against them or so. And instead of running out and attacking what they see, they begin to attack each other. And they die. And so what Isaiah is saying in this passage here is, hey, remember what God did in the land with Gideon. You see, it's as if God is saying to them, and he says it again in Matthew chapter 9, verse 26. You know, Jesus is almost at the cross when he says this to the disciples. The disciples are talking about the kingdom of God and who can get in and how they can get in. And he says this, Hey, with man, it's impossible. 
But with God, all things are possible. You see, what Isaiah is doing in this passage is pointing them back to God and saying, hey, remember this, that, that, that God is showing them that, hey, I can do something that can only be explained by me. You see, salvation can only be explained by God. You see, we have victory this morning because in and of ourselves, we cannot boast of what we've done because we have done nothing to gain the victory. God has done it himself. And so, we see this morning, because of the advent of Christ, we are set free from oppression. Do we believe that this morning? Do you believe as a child of God, you are set free from oppression? You see, because there's not enough pills to set you free of oppression. They might damper it a little bit, but they won't free you of oppression. They won't free you of depression. They won't free you of your addiction. They won't free you uh, of where you're at in your marriage. There's not enough external things to bring you freedom this morning. And do we believe that God, through Christ Jesus, is the freedom this morning? You see, we see that in these verses, verse 4, he says this, three words, circle them in your Bible. For the yoke, circle that. He's talking about the Israel, so the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor. Circle those three words, yoke, staff, and rod. Those three words show us oppression. The first one is the word yoke. It's the term that God used to show us that when we yoke ourselves to something, we are enslaved to it. You see, they were enslaved. If you remember where Israel, the Israelites are at this moment, they are enslaved to a wicked, wicked, wicked king of the north. They are in bondage. So the word yoke means, or have we yoked ourselves with things this morning? The next word is staff. The staff was used as an instrument for uh, the sheep to discipline them, to punish them, to correct them. You remember Frank taught us those uh, when he taught uh, over the summer that the staff was used by the shepherds to bring discipline. And so here we see that this staff is being used against the nation of Israel to punish them. And then the last one is the rod. It's the idea of a scepter. The scepter is used by a king to show that he rules over people. And so here we see that they've been enslaved and then they're slavery. They're being abused and abandoned by who's enslaved them. And they're in, they're in a, a wicked, wicked ruler is ruling over them. And God says in this passage, hey, do you remember that you broke as you were broken in the day of Midian? Remember, I'm going to do something in your midst. Remember verse 6 and verse 7 come. For unto us a child is born. Verse 7, I'm going to do all this in the zeal of the Lord. You see, God knows exactly what we needed. You see, Christ knew what he had to do. Christ came with a mission. You see, the mission of Christ was always to come and seek and save the lost. You see, Christ came because he knew we were oppressed and he knew that there was nothing external that could free us from our oppression, yet his death had to be the thing to free us from our oppression. Do we believe that this morning? Or do we believe that this world can free us from our oppression? Here's what D.A. Carson says, another great theologian. If you have time, it's a, a called, uh, the book is called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's by D.A. Carson, one of the leading theologians. 
for us today. He says this, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived our greatest need was an entertainer, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived our greatest need was, a, a, was political stability, he would have sent us a great a politician. If he had perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. And this is the key for us. But oh, he perceived our greatest need, involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion against him, our death. And so what did he do? He sent us a Savior. You see, God knew what we needed before we knew what we needed. If he knew what we, if he thought we needed a doctor, he would have sent Jesus as a doctor. If he thought we needed more laughter, he would have sent us an entertainer. But oh, he saw us right in the moment of our greatest need. We needed a Savior, amen? What did we need a Savior for? Because we were not living victorious. And so he knew the only way for us to live victorious was to send us a Savior who would redeem us so that we could live victorious because we have already won the victory. But do we believe that this morning? Here's what he says, Isaiah says, just a few chapters over, Isaiah chapter 1, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. If you're a believer here this morning, the Spirit of the Lord is upon you and it's in you. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prisons for all who are bound. This is what Christ does. This is what Christ is doing for us. Luke chapter 4 I love Luke chapter 4. It's where Jesus stands up in the synagogue. Some of you will get this analogy. Jesus stands up in the analogy, proclaims it, drops the mic and walks out and says, I'm the man. That's what Jesus says in the temple of God. And he says this in Luke chapter 4 verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, he, Jesus, where he had been brought up. That's where he was the boy and he grew up and he was with his, it was custom that he would go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover the sight of the blind and set the liberty of those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogues were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What he's saying is, hey, that passage that you know so well in Isaiah chapter 61, it's me. I'm that guy. The guy you've heard about for decades and decades and decades, the things that you've heard your grandparents say, your great-grandparents say, your granny-granny say, that's me, I'm the guy. And he sits down. Highlight that in your Bible. He sat down, we'll get to that. You see, Christ has won the victory for us today. It doesn't matter where you are at today, the victory has already been won for you. We just have to live in it. Do we live victorious Christian lives? Or do we live in utter defeat? Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, 
and do not submit yourselves again to the yoke of slavery. You see, all that we have to do is claim the victory that Christ has, and then we just stand firm, and the rest is done for us. That's all that pastor's saying. You already have the victory, now just stand firm, and don't go to the things that you used to go to that you thought were bringing you victory. It's pretty simple. It's not easy. Romans 12.8 says this, 1 and 2. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let me read that again. That ought to bring an amen from us. Therefore, there is no condemnation. If you are here this morning and you're a believer, there is no condemnation for you. You are free. You are free. You are free this morning. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. The spirit of life is Christ Jesus himself. Christ gives us life. We are free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 6.18 says this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, that's you and me, that's everyone in the room, have become what? Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been what? Set free from sin. You have become slaves to righteousness. You cannot be slaves to sin and slaves to righteousness. It is impossible. We can only serve one master. Who are you serving this morning? Who are you serving this morning? Who is your master? Is it still sin and death? Or is it Christ Jesus? I love this passage. I, I read it at Brother Bill's funeral, but I, I think it applies to us this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57. Well, really 55 through 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? Victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because of the victory of Christ, we do not have to taste death. It's been conquered for us. So we can say the way that Paul said in Corinthians, oh, death, where is your victory? It's been defeated. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's over. There is no more eternal sting because of our sin. It's been defeated. Because of what? Christ Jesus. Do you and do I live as set free believers? Do we live like we're set free? Two examples of that. Or do you live like an elephant? Do you live like an elephant? I know that's a question mark. But you see, if you ever go and you see how elephants are trained, all they do is when they're a small elephant, they put this little bitty chain around their foot and put a peg in the ground so they cannot move. And then the elephant begins to believe it cannot move, and then it becomes a full-grown element, but its mind has not changed because the circumstances has not changed. It's still chained to a small chain with a peg in the ground. Do you know that that elephant at one moment could stomp a mud hole in that little peg and free itself? So do you live like an elephant? The other one is this. Do you live like a slave? Do you remember we had one of the greatest presidents of all time free slaves? Abraham Lincoln. He freed the slaves. And yet it took a year after that, the, the, that declaration from President 
uh, Lincoln to really, for the, the slaves in the South to be free. How come? Because they still had slave owners saying to the slave, hey, you're not free yet. You aren't free yet. It took a solid year for the slaves to realize they were free because they were still in bondage to the slave owner. You see, that could be us. You see, there was a victory that was won for you on the cross and you've been set free from that. But yet, do, have you gotten the message that you're set free or do you still live like you're in bondage today? You have been set free today. Not because of anything that you've done, because there's been a declaration on your behalf, but, but before a holy God who sent his son to redeem you and to set you free. Are you set free? Or do you still live in oppression? Here's some ways that we may live in oppression. It's getting hot in here for me, so I'm taking this jacket off. I know it, it gets hot when my arms are wet. Uh, that might be too much information. I don't care. Several ways that we can still live in oppression. The first way is this. Self-righteousness. Has Powell's Chapel become a place of self-righteousness? Oh, well, we don't, and we don't, and we don't, and we don't. We do all these we don'ts. We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't dance. Okay, great. But if you just don't do those things, and it's not because of your freedom in Christ, you're just as in bondage as if you were to do those things. I might get in trouble for this one. Hey, if you don't dance, go try it. You're going to dance in heaven. I mean, break it out. Sorry, I better not. I mean, God says we are going to dance before holy God. I mean, get your dance moves ready today. You might want to do it at the privacy of your own home. But don't live with self-righteousness. And let us not look at those who are whatever and judge them for what they are doing whatever. They are lost without a holy God to redeem them. So yes, they're going to live like lost people. Why do we judge lost people? How come? They're lost. They're, let's not think a lost person is going to act like a righteous person. They cannot. It's, it's apart from them. God didn't judge us that way. God never said, oh man, Todd, you've got to get your stuff together, son, before I come down and redeem you. He came down and redeemed me in the middle of my stuff. That's the first way. The second way is approval. Let me say that one again. Approval. We care too much about what other people think of us. I mean... Just, just turn on the computer. I'm sick of social media. That, that thing is just about self-approval. I mean, I got 255 friends. You don't know 255 people on Facebook. Whoop-de-dooty. I got 10,000 friends. You don't even know them. But it has to do with our self-approval. It makes us feel good that so many people like our pictures. Good, you made a picture. Whoop-de-dooty. Howdy duty. That's the next one, approval. Comparison. Uh, uh, comparison in the church. We compare our lives to everyone else's life. My kid or my kids, they're not yours. They're your kids. We don't need to have approval or seek to compare anything. If we do any comparison, let us compare what our filthy rags look like and our holy God redeemed us of those filthy rags. 
We're all the same. The next one is this. Fear, anxiety, and in control. We live with so much fear that we're in so much control and anxiety that we don't live free lives. There's only one that we are to be afraid of. God himself. And so in ourselves do we live with all this anxiety. You see, if you live with anxiety, you're going to live with control. It just happens. Because if I think in my mindset, if I have this idea of fear, it's going to lead me to anxiety, which is going to lead me to control. What am I trying to control? The things that bring me fear. And what Christ is saying to us this morning, you're free from the fear that leads you to anxiety, and you have no control anyway. But we don't live that way. We live anxious lives. Because we don't believe that Christ died on a cross to set us free. You see, you, you will get to this point next. You may have fear that has led to anxiety to control because of your past sin, that's for sure. And you may have money fear because of poor choices, but you have a holy God that can redeem your poor choices. The last one is this. And I think this is the big one for the church. Past failures. Man, pastor, if you only knew what I did. If you only knew what I said. If you only knew. If you only knew. And the biggest thing that comes out of if you only knew is this next phrase. I wish I could forgive myself. I wish I could forgive myself. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that one. Let me tell you this. You cannot ever forgive yourself. You cannot, let me say that again and again and again, you cannot forgive yourselves of your past failures. And if you believe that this morning, then you don't believe in the work of the cross this morning. If you think you can forgive yourself, you technically do not believe in the cross of Jesus because Jesus says, I'm the only one that can forgive your past failures. It doesn't matter what you've done in here this morning. It does not matter what you've done here this morning. You are forgiven this morning. It's real quiet in the room. Because I really believe that we as a church live with past failures. Oh man, Todd, you don't know what I did when I was 15. You don't know what I did when I was in college. You don't know what I did last night. It doesn't matter. The Holy God knows. And the Holy God has forgiven you. And holy God has set you free. And so you're free indeed today. No, you're right. You cannot forgive yourself. Amen to that. Because if you forget, could forgive yourself, you would work every day tirelessly to forgive yourself. And still come up at the end of the day short. Because no, you cannot forgive yourself. But there is a holy God who stepped out of heaven to forgive you right where you're at. He knows your past failures. And it's not too much for him. If you're struggling with pornography today, it's not too much for him. If you're struggling in an affair today, it's not too much for him. If it's alcohol today, it's not too much for him. Whatever it is that you're holding back from God and saying, I just wish I forgive, could forgive myself. You cannot this morning. The altar's going to be wide open this morning. You cannot forgive yourself. There is a holy God who sent his son to redeem you. Why? To set you free. Because if he knew exactly what you needed. A redeemer. 
break out into some old gospel, our Redeemer lives. I better not do that, though. But we do have a, a God that's here to redeem us of all things. He says in his word that I've come to set the captive free. What he's saying is I've come to break the bondage of sin and death. The last thing is before we close. Because of the advent of Christ, we have complete victory over our enemies. Let me say that again. Because of Christ, we have complete victory over our enemies. That's what he's saying in, chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 9. The fuel for the fire, circle that in your Bibles. What that is saying is that when, when, when the people of God or the enemies or whoever would win a battle, they would collect all the, 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 the ones they had just conquered. They'd collect all their stuff. All, all their weaponry, all their clothes, all their goods, and they'd set a fire to all those things as a symbol that they had won the victory. And so what Christ is telling us through God, through God is telling us through Christ Jesus, I'm setting a fire to all those things that held you in bondage today. There is a bonfire full of your stuff and my stuff that says we're free today. Complete victory over our enemies. Not partial. You and I today, if we're a believer, we have complete victory over Satan. Let me say that one more time. Because of what, the work of Christ, that he would come, at the advent of Christ, he would come to this planet, and he would live a holy life, one that I could not live, one that you could not live, and take all of our sins on the cross, at the cross he took all those things and lit a fire to them and said, oh you're free from the enemy. Satan has no power over your life anymore. And yet we live like elephants. We don't live free lives. Here's what the psalmist had to say about it. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. Hosea chapter 2 says this, God is speaking. I will make a covenant with them on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war for the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Do you live in safety today? Because you have a great shepherd watching over you. If you believe that today, you and I would lay down because we have an overseer watching out for us. Do you lay in safety this morning? Psalms chapter 46, 9 says this. He, God, makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots of fire. And the greatest thing of all comes out of John chapter 19, verse 30, where God, through his son Jesus, is hanging on the cross, and he simply says these words, It is finished. I mean, I could give on and on and on of examples of Christ winning the victory. But when he hung and died in his last words on the cross, were, oh, it is finished. It is finished this morning. Do we believe that? You see, because it takes us all the way back to what God did when through Christ in Luke chapter 4, he dropped the mic and said, that's me. That's what he's saying in John, in John 19, 30. It's finished. He's saying to them, hey, remember this, because we're going to look three places real fast. It says this in, John, in Hebrews 1, long ago, 
At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken us to, to us by the Son, who's appointed the heirs of all things through whom we have created this world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the words of His power. After, this, get this, this is huge. After making purification for our sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what he means when it says, I'm finished. You see, we'll look here in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, and, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. This is Hebrews 10.10. 10. He made a sacrifice one time for all the sins. And what it says, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what he is saying to us. In, in John chapter 19, verse 30, he's saying this, it's finished. And when he says it's finished, he can just sit down. You see, we have Christ sitting down today at the right hand of the Father because it is finished. There's nothing left that He has to do. He's done it for you. He's done it for me. Have we embraced that gospel today? Have we embraced that Christ is sitting finished at the right hand of God? He's done it all. There's nothing left for Him to do. The only thing that he now has to do is come back and redeem it all. He doesn't have to come back and, and make another sacrifice for us. The sacrifice has been done. All he has to do now is say, hey, it is done. And I'm going to come and redeem my people back to myself. Have you embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ today? I'll read this one last thing. As I'm reading this thing, if the, the deacons would come and prepare the Lord's Supper for us. I can't think of a better way to end the message today than with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for us as a reminder to what all that God has done for us, that God, through His Son, offered His body and His blood so that we could live victorious. And so for us this morning, when we take that communion, when we take the Lord's Supper this morning, it's not just about a piece of cracker and a little bit of juice. It's as if we're saying to God, oh, I remember that what you said is so true. It is finished this morning. And so as you're here taking the Lord's Supper this morning, it is finished this morning. It is finished. You can live victorious today. Wherever you're at in your life, you don't have to remain there in bondage. You can remain free because of what Christ did for you. Again, D.A. Carson said this. The resurrection of Jesus offers us courage and strength to persevere because of his victory over sin and death is ours both in this life and the one to come. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Let me say that one more time. The same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the grave now lives in you. Do we believe that? He dwells in you. He sanctifies us. 
And He empowers us to follow Christ and to serve the mission of the church. And we know that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us as well when Jesus returns. Here the broken find hope and courage. For in Christ we have power and victory to obey. And we will, in the end, be raised in His likeness. It is finished. Because of the coming of our Lord Jesus at Advent, we have victory. Let us stop living like elephants. Let us live free in the victory that Christ gave us on the cross. This morning, your marriage can be different. Your life can be different. Your job can be different. Your relationships with people can be different because of the freedom of Christ. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. You are free. 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 You are free this morning. God, let us live as free lives. As free people, God. That your word is so clear that the bondage of sin and death has been broken, God. And yet so many of us in this place do not live that way. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came as a baby into a manger to redeem people. Your whole mission, God, through Christ, was to set us free. For believers here, we are set free. Let us live that way. God, I pray with all my heart, with all my being this morning, God, there's someone in here that does not know you as their Lord and Savior. They are wrapped up in bondage. And they'll never live free lives. I pray that they would this morning, this morning, God, surrender their will and their life over to you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray for us this morning. God, if there's things in our life that we don't live with victory in, that today, today, God, we'd come before you and we'd confess those things to you and we'd give those things to you so that your power would break the things that hold us in bondage. Lead us and guide us, I pray. Amen. We'll take the Lord's Supper this morning as we're doing it. Be reminded of this. It is finished. It is finished. Before you take the Lord's Supper, Paul is so clear in his word that if there's things in your heart that you have not confessed before our holy God, that keep you in bondage. Today is the day. Before you take the Lord's Supper, come to the altar. Come find me. Come find one of the deacons. Let us pray over you and for you. James tells us what, that when the prayers of a righteous person are, healed, are heard, those who are sick are healed. And so if you're here this morning and you're in bondage, come to one of us and let us pray over you that the power of Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit, you'd leave here set free today. If you don't know Christ today, please don't take communion. This is not for you. This is a way for us as a believer to be reminded of the precious, powerful work of the cross. And if you do not know Christ, you do not know his life, his death, or his resurrection, please do not, for your sake, take this bread and this wine. At this time, let us prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.